Again, uh, for those uh, that have joined us in the last 20 minutes, we uh, are in the middle of the weekend for us here on campus. Um, not just any weekend, but our weekend of worship with the theme of the guts to go. If you remember a fall week of worship, we talked about um, the guts to do big things. Um, and uh, winter quarter, we talked about the guts to go deeper in our walk with Christ, and now we're talking about the guts to go into our world and make a change and be agents of change. And so um, we have had Jonathan Duffy here with us, who is the director of ADRA International, Adventist Development Relief Agency, um, who has joined us to share his thoughts and reflections on some of Jesus' teachings and some of the world's needs and what it is that we need to do, and we're excited to have him here. He is um, not only a fiery Australian, um, but what I think may be more important, uh, also an Irishman, and I appreciate uh, that, of course. Um, so we're excited to welcome him to our stage this morning. There are uh, some events happening this weekend um, really targeting the university students, but anyone is welcome to join us. After uh, second service in the Mountain View apartment courtyard, uh, our cable uh, team, which is our health ministries, has a potluck picnic, which is Mexican-themed, and they're going to be out there for a while just enjoying the weather and food and fellowship from about 1.30 um, on until that dies down. Uh, there's also a, a, a neat opportunity for outreach this afternoon. At 3 o'clock at the uh, Dairy Express parking lot, um, the gas station, they, we have a team that is meeting up, and they're going to head down to Pioneer Park this afternoon for a special outreach to do a carnival of sorts. Uh, we have a lot of extra people in town for a tour of Walla Walla, the bike race downtown, and uh, it'll be ending around 3.30, 4 o'clock, and so some might spill over to Pioneer Park. But come out if you want to join us. We're going to be doing face painting and making balloon animals and singing some songs and just trying to brighten some people's day um, and show them the love of God in a practical way. And then tomorrow morning is our tri-college service day. And though typically we often think about that again just for our students, but any of you are welcome to join us if you would like. Uh, this service day is different uh, than our normal because this is where we join with Whitman College and Walla Walla Community College, and we will we'll meet and launch from the community college at 8.30 tomorrow morning. The service projects will have about three hours uh, to most of them, and uh, we'll be in groups with students from each of those colleges. And if you want to sign up and join us for that time, uh, the website to sign up is aswu.com slash service day. So it's aswu.com forward slash service day. If you want to sign up and come join us for that opportunity, you are welcome to do so. Thank you, Patty. I, I got to say that uh, waking up this morning, you know, what is it? Uh, coveting things is not really a good thing. And so it tested my Christian experience. I was, um, I was first introduced, I did a lot of work with a, a close friend of mine, Dr. Gary Hopkins. And uh, he moved up to North Idaho, and that was my introduction when we came, you know, when I was a health director in the South Pacific Division, and we worked together on youth issues, and I was introduced to the Pacific Northwest, and ever since then, I've sort of just fallen in love with this area, and, and now I wake up this morning, and it's just a magnificent day, and I'm thinking, tonight, I've got to go back to Washington, D.C. So it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of bad to cover other areas, but if I had one place, if I could move Adra, today, it would be to the Pacific Northwest. I don't think there's any place better on earth. So, you know, the, this morning I would like to sort of, you know, ask you a question. Why did Jesus come to this earth? 
Now, when we ask that question, the most common question answer that people give is they say, well, well, you know, that's simple. We came to this earth to pay the penalty for our sins that we might have life. But, you know, there is a second reason of why Jesus came to this earth as well. And, uh, you know, there's sometimes when we, when, when, when someone's first appointed, you know, the first time somebody is, is appointed to a new role, perhaps it's a new pastor and he gets up here and he gets a chance to give his first sermon and he sets a vision, or, or maybe it's a new president of the university. And, you know, I remember three years ago when I was woken up in the middle of the night in Australia and sort of said, well, we've just appointed you as the next president of ADRA, you know, get your butt over here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's annual council for the World Church and you, we want to introduce you. So, you know, you jump on a plane, you come over and you're feeling jet lagged and you stand up and they introduce you and now you're supposed to give your first speech. And whenever you give the first speech, you really set the agenda for what your vision is for how you want to move your organization forward, of how you want to move your congregation forward. And so to look at the reason of why Jesus came to this earth, perhaps we should look at his first speech to see what was the agenda that he put forward for his time on earth. And that is found over in Luke chapter 4 and verse 17. So turn with me over there. Luke chapter 4, my technology has let me down a little bit, and uh, so, I don't know, you this latest app on the upgrade on the iPads and things, you know, crashed, and now I've lost stuff, so I'm, I'm in a new app for my Bible, so if I get lost somewhere in the middle of it, be patient with me. And it says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I've got to tell you that this was not exactly the news that the Jews were looking for, because they were looking for their Messiah to return. Their Messiah was to overthrow the Romans. Their Messiah was to set them up as the world leaders. Their Messiah was to, to invest in them becoming wealthy and powerful and world rulers. And finally, after many years of waiting for their Messiah to arrive, he comes, and what does he say his role is? To look after widows, to set the prisoners free, to heal the sick, to spread the good news to the poor. This was not exactly the image that they had in mind for their Messiah. You know, I, I love the, 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 the story of John the Baptist because it just reminds me of, of, of being so human. Because, you know, here's John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was, was, spent his life, you know, his mission was to prepare the way. And so he preaches preparing the way, living out in the, in, in the wilderness there on food that I'm not sure whether it was all kosher or whatever, but, you know, locusts and whatever else he could find. And, and, and then finally, after all these years of sacrifice and preaching, he gets the fulfillment of his mission when Jesus comes to be baptized. And he baptizes Jesus, and a, a light descends from heaven, a dove, a voice of God is heard, and, and, and the fulfillment of his mission. And now, you know, maybe six months later or something, he's sitting in prison awaiting his execution, and he has doubts. That's human, isn't it? 
Like, you know, have you ever wished that you could hear the word of God, the voice of God, that he could just come down one night and just sit on the end of your bed and just sort of answer a few questions for you and tell you what to do and, you know, what course to apply for and what, whether to go to post-grad now or whether to go and, and, you know, maybe work for a couple of years and get some experience. You know, there's many things. And, and here is John the Baptist having heard the voice of God and six months later he's having doubts. You know, we're, we're like that, aren't we? We have, we have these tremendous experiences where there's times that something happens that it just makes us feel like, wow, you know, God really is in control of my life. And then the next time a problem comes along, we wonder where God is. That's why I like John the Baptist. He sort of makes me feel like I don't have to be perfect, that some of these Bible characters who we put on such a pedestal were weak like us. And so he sends his disciples out and he says, you know, find Jesus, bring back proof. That, that he, he really is the Son of God. And, and, and so they go out looking for Jesus, and, and, and they find Jesus. Now you think of, what is it that Jesus could have done to prove that he was the Son of God? You know, here's his cousin over here, you know, about to be executed. He could have sort of bent down and picked up a rock and said, here, take this back to John. And, and when it went into John's hands, his rock could have turned into the most beautiful butterfly that just would have given him some peace and realized that God is God and things are beautiful despite what he's facing. But instead, what does he do? It's fine, look with me over to Luke chapter 7, verse 22. And we read here, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So what was the proof that he truly was the Son of God? It wasn't in his words, it wasn't in his teachings, it was in his actions. And through his actions, he fulfilled the mission that his Father had sent him down to. And so the proof of his heavenly being was through his actions. Imagine how much less effective would Jesus' ministry have been if all he'd done was preach and never performed actions or miracles to show that he truly was the Son of God, that he truly did care, that he came down to worship and, and to demonstrate to us that God's love is present even in a dark world and to point people toward the healing that God has for them and be an agent of hope and healing. You know, when we look at the, the word for, 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 for God in, in Scripture, it, it, it's used many times. The word yasha is used 200 times. The word rapha, 80 times. Sozo, 5,020 times. And what all of these terms for God, when you look at the root meaning of it, is it is to heal and to restore. And Jesus' purpose for his church, for his people, after he left, was that they would continue his ministry to being agents of hope and healing and pointing people towards the true healing that God has for them. To be agents of light in a dark world. And his desire was that his church would be a sneak preview of what he was like. People were to look at his church and say, wow, these people are really different. I can't wait to meet their king. You know, Israel was a poor sneak preview. Moses gave them many rules about social responsibility, rules about the Sabbath, the year of the Jubilee. Have you all heard of the year of the Jubilee? When all debts were to be forgiven, when all slaves were to be set free? 
Do you know, I, I've spoken to many theologians now and historians, and I've tried to find out how many times in history is there any record, or even in Scripture, of the year of the Jubilee actually being enacted. There is no record anywhere that it was ever enacted. It remains sort of a principle espoused in Scripture, but it was never followed through on. None of us wanted to give up our slaves or our wealth or forgive our debts. None of us wanted to make that much of a self-sacrifice to make a difference in the world. And so it sits there in Scripture as an ideal, but something which has not actually challenged us in how we live. You know, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, God declares that there should be no poor among you. And yet we look around and we see the poverty that exists, even within the town of Walla Walla the homelessness, the people who are sitting on a corner, you know, with a, a cardboard sign saying, I'm homeless, you know, help me. I, I'm an injured vet. I can't work. I need food for my family. And we're surrounded by these whole issues of poverty. How do you feel that we're writing today as a church in continuing that mission of healing and agents of hope that God gave, asked us to be when he went to heaven for us to continue his ministry? You know, in, in Isaiah chapter 58, turn with me over to there, Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1. You knew that if you're going to have a weekend of talks, you know, by a president of Adra, Isaiah 58 has to come out at some time. So I thought, well, you know, let's get it over with and we'll bring it out. So, we read here, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit your workers." Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Wow. How does this challenge us in how we live our lives? Are we happy to be, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, where we come along and we put aside a day of the week, and, and well, that's a big sacrifice, you know, and so that's our day, and then the other six days, well, I'm pretty busy, but, you know, I put aside a day, and if I can squeeze it in there, then it's okay, and, and, and our church becomes a bit of a ritual, as it says in this, 
where we come along and we do all our rituals, but it actually doesn't affect how I live my life or how I impact those in poverty or distress living around about me. And don't forget that poverty is not just physical poverty because there's people who are also experiencing spiritual poverty as well that are amongst us that are as much in need as healing as anyone who's hungry today. And how does this affect me in terms of how I live my life and how I view others around about me? Is, is this changing how I need to be? You know, sometimes I, I ask people when I get a chance in the seminar, I say to them, you know, depend on, you know, pretend I know nothing about the church. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to describe the Adventist church to me. So they start off and they tell me, we're, well, we're Seventh-day Adventist. And so, you know, it's about the Sabbath. So they'll give me a little sermon out on the Sabbath, and perhaps even creation will come in as a part of that, and they'll tell me about creation and how Jesus rested on the seventh day. And then they'll go on to the Advent part, and they'll tell me about Jesus' second coming, and then they'll move into other doctrines, and perhaps the second coming might move into a Bible study on, on the state of the dead, and then they'll bring up the health message. And, 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 and then I'll say to them, okay, so, so that's who the Seventh-day Adventist is. Now, pretend to me that you know nothing about, I have never heard of Jesus Christ. Describe to me this character, this person, Jesus Christ. Who was he? They say, well, he was the kindest, most caring, compassionate, patient, forgiving, accepting being that ever walked the face of this earth. So what is our commission? Is our commission to be like Christ? Are we successful when people know our doctrines? Or we're successful when people know Christ because of how we live him out in our lives. I'm not having to go at doctrines. But, you know, our doctrines aren't there to define us. They're there to shape us, to help us to be more Christ-like. So we know that we're being successful when people say, you know what, in Walla Walla, we have that Adventist University. And let me tell you, that Adventist University is the greatest thing that ever happens in this community. The students and the staff of that faculty, the people who attend church there, are the most caring, compassionate, forgiving, accepting people that you ever come across. When people begin to use the same words to describe us as they used to describe Jesus, then we know that we are being effective, that we are being a light in a dark world. That's when we know that we are being effective and being agents of hope and healing in the brokenness that exists around about us. You know, turn with me over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And it says here, then this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's not just about what I profess. It's not just about making a wonderful speech on a Sabbath morning that really makes a difference. Our actions are what speak loudly for us. How do our actions demonstrate the fact that we truly are the children of God, that he lives within us, and that he drives how we live? A.W. Tozer puts it this way, we hear a Christian assure someone that he will pray over his problem knowing full well that he intends to use prayer as a substitute for service. It is much easier to pray that a poor friend's needs may be supplied than to supply them. And don't get me wrong, I am a great advocate for prayer, and, you know, we, Adra works in some pretty challenging places around the world, and, uh, 
and, and uh, you know, we need your prayers. People are, are put in harm's way. But if you're just using prayer as a substitute for service, if you're just praying about our during the hope that if you pray for us that you've fulfilled your role of being an agent of hope and change, then I'm sorry to tell you that that doesn't fulfill it. God's given us the resources and the means to be the solution to our friends. He's not expecting us to ask for, to supply the friend's needs when he's already given us the means. He's asking us to get down and dirty and working together on those things. You know, Ellen White in the Thoughts from the Mounts of Blessing says this. She says, the standard of the gold, golden rule is the true standard of Christianity. Anything short of it is a deception. A religion that leads men to place a low estimate upon human beings who Christ has esteemed of such values as to give himself for them. A religion that would lead us to be careless of human needs, sufferings, or rights is a spurious religion. In sliding the claims of the poor, the suffering, and the sinful, we are proving ourselves traitors to Christ. It is because men take upon themselves the name of Christ while in life they deny his character that Christianity has so little power in the world. Wow. It's a challenge, isn't it, in how I live my life? Now, Tony Campolo, a well-known youth speaker and, and, and author, says these words. He says, Faith without a commitment to justice for the poor is a sham because it ignores the most explicit of all the gospel concerns of Scripture. And I don't know whether any of you have ever, ever seen it, but the Bible Society has brought out a version of the Bible. It's called the Poverty and Justice Bible. It's not a, a, a special translation or anything. But in the version of the Bible, what it's done is it's printed, and, and, and in its printing it's highlighted every text that calls us to stand up for issues of injustice and to reach out and to be an agent of hope and healing to our poor neighbours as we reach out to give them a hand. It's difficult when you get that Bible to open up to find a page that hasn't got a text highlighted. There's over 2,300 texts in the Bible that call for us to stand up and be agents of justice and, and mercy. And yet, how often do we hear it preached about? You know, we have many doctrines in our Bible, and don't get me wrong, and some of them are based around, you know, 10 or 20 script pieces of Scripture. Here's 2,000 you know, 300 of them, and, and what have we done as a church to activate this? How much do we talk about it? How much do we challenge ourselves in how we live our lives in being agents of hope and healing? It's a central theme throughout all of the Bible. Mike Koski was a young guy who, when he was at university, decided that he didn't want to be a hypocrite, and so as he worked about doing things for the poor, he said, I, don't, I come from a very comfortable surroundings, and so I don't really know what it's like to live in poverty. So him and a close friend decided that they were going to live in poverty. So they decided on a journey and they visited, I can't remember, it was three or five cities in the US in a, and, and, and became homeless, purposely became homeless. And they lived amongst the homeless people and they faced the same challenges of the homeless people and they busked to try and get some food, you know, and, 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 and they went hungry many times and they were dirty and filthy and rejected by people and people judged them. They found that Christians were more judging of them. And, and in his book, he says these words, if we are the body of Christ and Christ came not for the healthy but the sick, we need to be fully present in the places where people are most broken. And it has to be more than just a financial presence. That helps, of course, but too often money is insulation. It conveniently keeps us from ever having to come face to face with men or women whose lives are in tatters. When we're willing to get down to eating together, listening together, and telling the truth together, cleaning together, peeling potatoes together, the gospel comes alive. 
you know, sometimes people say to me, Jonathan, you know, well, you know, why do we really need ADRA? I mean, you know, there's other agencies out there. Why does the church need, need a humanitarian agency? That's not the core function of the church. I mean, you know, ours is evangelism, and, 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 and you know, there's other agencies out there. But if we look at all brokenness and all sin, when God created the world, he created four relationships. He created the relationship between God and man. He created the relationship between man to self, man to fellow man, and man to the environment. And all brokenness comes from the breaking of one of those relationships. And all restoration comes from the healing of those relationships. And so is it adequate that I just leave it up to another non-government organization to deal with the environment, or another non-organization, you know, NGO, non-government organization to, to deal with, with, with food or, or, or health care? Because is it adequate for me as a Christian to understand that these agencies will heal, but they don't offer complete healing? If brokenness comes from the breaking of one of those four relationships, then all healing and restoration must include all of those relationships that God's put in place. It's not adequate just to, to give a person food. We must recognize that every person is a spiritual being and every person needs a restoration of the spirituality within themselves as well. Just as they're physically broken or the environment is broken around about them. So as a church, we need to be present amongst the brokenness that people have because we have a complete we have a complete mission of healing that heals people across the whole spectrum of brokenness. And we need to be agents of hope and healing that point people towards the true healing that God has in store for them. We have a holistic message, and it's not about just being proud of an agency. It's about how we live our lives personally, how we see ourselves of taking on that mandate that Christ gave when he left to go back to heaven, to say, in my absence, continue my ministry of being um, an agent of hope and healing in this broken world. You know, John Wagner was, um, he, he was, he was, when he was born, his father was a pastor in Switzerland. And this was pre-World War II. And uh, so what happened in Switzerland was that there was a law that everybody had to attend school six days a week. And, uh, well, his father was an Adventist pastor, and he said, my children aren't going to attend school on Sabbath. So he went to the government officials and he made a deal. And he made a deal that, that one day a week, he would surrender himself to the officials and he'd be incarcerated for one day a week to pay the penalty for his kids not attending school on Sabbath. He stood up for issues of justice and he taught his son, John, when you see injustice, you've got to stand up for it and take action and face it head on. So when John was into his teenage years, his father was moved across the border into France at Colonge College, and he spent his teen years exploring the mountains and hiking all around Colonge College there on the border of Switzerland in France. When World War II broke out, he was a successful merchant man. Um, he was in a textile business. He was protected because people still need clothes and armies need uniforms, and so he wasn't conscripted into the army, but as World War II went on, he was living in Belgium at the time, and he saw the atrocities that were happening. He saw the Jews that were being loaded onto the trains, knowing they were going to death camps. He saw the, the torture of, of, of allied prisoners as they were trapped behind the lines. And so his father, so you know, you, when you see injustice, you've got to stand up and do something. So John, along with his sisters, started the underground movement. And uh, at the end of World War II, his sisters were actually killed as part of that movement and he survived. 
And at the end of World War II, he was honored by, by Belgium, by France, by England, by America. His, his name is on the, 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 the special wall in, in, in Jerusalem. For, for what he did in standing up for justice and, and used his knowledge of all the trails that he'd explored as a young boy, smuggling the Jews and Allied servicemen out, saved many hundreds and thousands of lives. And, and then in his older age, he returned to, he actually came to America and had a health food store there, and he, he actually continued to be an Adventist all of his life. And in his older age, he wrote these memoirs. He said, during our lives, each of us faces a choice. Do you think only about yourself to get as much as you can for yourself or to think about others, to serve, to be helpful to those who are in need. I believe it is very important to develop your brains, your knowledge, but it is more important to develop your heart, to open your heart to the suffering of others. You know, the challenge that, that I would like to leave with you, it comes from an anonymous source, so I can't claim it, but I want you to listen carefully to me. It goes like this, sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, suffering and injustice when he could do something about it. So why don't you ask him, you say? It seems like a good question. Because I'm afraid he would ask me the same question. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, all of us have been broken in some ways, Lord. All of us have need, been in need of healing, and we just thank you that you've come to find us and come to heal us and come to restore us, Lord. But there is still much brokenness that exists amongst us. There's drunk brokenness that exists amongst this college campus of people who are still searching, who have yet to found your, find your healing, Lord. Please use us. Open our eyes to the brokenness. Open our eyes to the means that you've given us that we can become agents of hope and healing, that we might become, take on your character that we might show your love and your mercy to those around about us, Lord, is our prayer in your name.